everyone, and welcome to the October 29th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today, so let's get started with our litigation report. A new WCAB unbanked decision provides guidance on the QME process rules. Here's what happened in the case of Sandab Suan versus California Dairies. Sandab Suan filed three claims while employed as a machine operator by California Dairies. Dr. Robert Weber acted as the Internal Medicine Panel QME and evaluated the applicant on August 3, 2015. Dr. Robindra Paul was the Psychiatric Panel QME. The Hartford representative sent a letter to the internal QME Dr. Weber enclosing a copy of Dr. Paul's report in response to Dr. Weber's request to see the psychiatric report during his deposition. The letter lists applicant's attorney as one of the copied parties but only states his name, not his address, and there was no proof of service of the letter offered into evidence. Dr. Weber issued a report in August 2016 reflecting his receipt and review of the psychiatric report and stating that his opinion remained as expressed in his previous reporting. The matter ultimately proceeded to trial on the issue of whether Dr. Weber, as the internal medicine QME, has been tainted based upon the provision of Dr. Paul's report to him during the period of time that the issue is being disputed. And if so, is this sufficient to entitle the applicant to a new internal medicine panel? The work comp judge found that the Hartford provided medical information to the internal medicine PQME without first serving applicant and engaged in ex-party communication in violation of the labor code. The parties were ordered to obtain a new QME panel in internal medicine or to agree to an Internal Medicine AME. The Codefendant Insurance Company of the West petitioned for reconsideration of that order. The WCAB issued an unbanked decision in the case which clarified some of the legal principles involved in PQME disputes. It noted that Section 4062.3b of the Labor Code requires that information proposed to be provided to the QME shall be served on the opposing party 20 days before the information is provided to the evaluator. Section E separately requires that communications with the QME before a medical evaluation must also be served on the opposing party, again, 20 days in advance of the evaluation. However, Section E further provides that any Subsequent communication shall be served on the opposing party when sent to the medical evaluator. The preliminary question is whether the documents or materials sent to the QME are information or communication as those terms are used in the labor code. The evidence in the record of this case is unclear whether the letter to the QME was properly served and received by the applicant's attorney. So the case was returned to the work comp judge to further address the issue of service. If a communication was not ex parte, then the trier of fact must decide if the document or material sent to the QME nonetheless constitute information subject to Section 4062 or just communication. 
As further guidance in the case, the unbanked decision provided the following rules. 1. Disputes over what information to provide to the QME are to be presented to the WCAB if the parties cannot informally resolve the dispute. 2. Although the Labor Code does not give a specific timeline for the opposing party to object to the QME's consideration of medical records, the opposing party must object to the provision of medical records to the QME within a reasonable time in order to preserve the objection. 3. If the aggrieved party elects to terminate the evaluation and seek a new evaluation due to an ex-party communication, the aggrieved party must do so within a reasonable time following discovery of the prohibited communication. 4. The trier of fact has wide discretion to determine appropriate remedies for any violations. And 5. A petition for removal is the appropriate procedural avenue to challenge a decision regarding disputes over what information to provide to the QME and ex-party communications with the QME. And the Court of Appeal ruled that the exclusive remedy provisions of workers' compensation law is no protection for an uninsured employer. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Bulandi versus Southern California Permanente Medical Group. Fiona Berlandi filed a lawsuit against Permanente Medical Group and several entities involved in the administration of her workers' compensation claim. She alleged that the Permanente Medical Group induced her to accept employment with the company and to remain employed there by repeatedly assuring her it would pay her workers' compensation benefits if and when it became necessary. In 2014, a car hit her while she was walking on a footpath at a Kaiser facility. She filed a workers' compensation claim, and Sedgwick sent her a letter allegedly purporting to deny her workers' comp claim. According to the applicant, the defendants investigated her workers' comp claim in bad faith, looked for ways to avoid paying her benefits, and denied the claim for patently false reasons, so she says. Fiona sued Permanente Medical Group for damages for being willfully uninsured or not permissibly self-insured, breach of her employment contract, and unfair business practices, among other theories. The court sustained the defendant's demur to all of her causes of action on the ground they were barred by the exclusive remedy provisions of the Workers' Compensation Act. But the Court of Appeal reversed in the unpublished case. Fiona alleged permanent medical group was willfully uninsured or not permissibly self-insured. If that allegation is true, her employer is not protected by workers' compensation exclusivity and she may bring a civil action for damages for her work-related injuries. The trial court ruled on the demur that Permanente Medical Group was indeed self-insured by taking judicial notice of a DIR Certificate of Consent to Self-Insure issued to Permanente Medical Group in 1965, and another document posted on the DIR website listing Permanente Medical Group as a self-insured employer. Because these documents did not indisputably establish Permanente Medical Group was self-insured, however, 
the trial court erred and the matter was remanded to further investigate that issue. Attorney Mark Leeds sued lawyers Donald Rayano and Miles Ida, claiming they breached an agreement to pay him 25% of attorney fees for workers' compensation cases he referred to them. His law firm separated from the defendants in 2010, and a controversy arose regarding his entitlement to fees for cases he had referred to the defendants. This is the second time this case has been before the Court of Appeal. After remand, the trial court granted the defendants' motions for summary judgment, reasoning that the fee-splitting agreement was illegal under the state bar rules of professional conduct, specifically Rule 2-200. This was because the parties had not obtained written client consent. Leeds again appealed, and following his second review, the Court of Appeal affirmed the trial court in the unpublished case of Leeds versus Reno and Ida. State bar rules provide that a client has to consent to a fee-splitting agreement in writing after a full written disclosure has been made, including terms of the fee division. The Supreme Court has held the rule is unambiguous in the written disclosure and consent requirements and encompasses any division of fees where the attorneys are not partners or associates of each other or are not shareholders in the same law firm. And a lawyer's failure to comply with Rule 2-200 precludes him from sharing fees pursuant to a fee-splitting agreement. In the case of Mr. Leeds, it was undisputed that the parties have not obtained written client consent for the division of fees between them. The Court of Appeal concluded that no authority supports any of Mr. Leeds' contentions regarding compliance with the rules. Several California employers sued applied underwriters related insurance entities challenging the legality of the Equity Comp Workers' Compensation Insurance Program. The applied insurance entities moved for an order to compel arbitration based on arbitration provisions and the side agreements to the insurance policy. And one of the employers, Desert Pizza, countered that the arbitration provisions were unenforceable because the defendants failed to file them with the California Insurance Commissioner for approval as required by the insurance code. And the trial court agreed and denied the motion to compel arbitration. The Court of Appeal affirmed the denial in the unpublished case of Low Desert Empire Pizza, Inc. versus Applied Underwriters. This case involves the intersection of California workers' compensation insurance laws and the Federal Arbitration Act. This is one of several actions in the state and across the country challenging the legality of defendants' equity comp program based on their failure to seek and obtain regulatory approval of the side agreements to their insurance policy. The California Insurance Commissioner recently issued an administrative decision concluding that the appellant's failure to file a virtually identical equity comp side agreement rendered the arbitration provision void and unenforceable. 
And even more recently, another Court of Appeal division reached the same conclusion in another case brought by Nelson Contracting. Thus, in this case, the Court of Appeal went along with other cases and concluded that the violation of the insurance code renders their arbitration provisions unenforceable and affirmed the order denying the motions to compel arbitration. And in another case, the Court of Appeal denied a constitutional lien law challenge made by TriStar Medical Group. Chiropractor Michael E. Berry, TriStar Medical Group, and the Coalition for Sensible Workers' Compensation Reform petitioned the Court of Appeals asking that the new lien stay law be declared unconstitutional. And they asked for orders directing the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board to perform its duties and adjudicate TriStar's lien claims. The new anti-fraud scheme casts a very broad net to halt all proceedings related to any workers' compensation liens filed by criminally charged medical providers as well as any entities controlled by the charged provider. The legislature created this new scheme because existing laws permitted charged providers to collect on liens while defending their criminal cases, allowing continued funding of fraudulent practices. Pursuant to these two new statutes, the government gained authority to automatically stay liens filed by charge providers and non-charged entities without considering if the liens were actually tainted by the alleged illegal misconduct. As a result, untainted liens may be stayed and go unpaid for a lengthy stretch of time because, in addition to the period required for a completion of the criminal case, the statute provides for two post-conviction evidentiary hearings. In the first hearing, the administrative director decides whether to suspend the convicted provider from further participating in the workers' compensation system. Following this hearing, the special lien proceeding attorney identifies and gathers liens to be adjudicated together by a workers' compensation judge in a consolidated special lien proceeding. In the second hearing, the lien holder has the evidentiary burden to rebut the statutorily mandated presumption that consolidated liens are all tainted by the misconduct and should not be paid. Chiropractor Berry and TriStar maintain these statutory provisions went too far and are forcing many legitimate lien providers to stop treating injured workers because the process has become too onerous, expensive, and financially risky. They maintain the process has effectively dismantled the safety net in place for injured workers, and they suggest the true legislative purpose of the statutes goes beyond fraud prevention and serves the district attorney's desire to financially cripple criminally charged lien claims, hampering their ability to adequately defend themselves at trial. The Court of Appeal took judicial notice of a number of related documents, including the proceedings in federal court by other lien claimants, such as the case brought by Vanguard Medical Management Billing in federal court. At the end of the review, the Court of Appeal found no merit to any of their claims and denied them the requested relief in the 
published case of Barry versus the WCAB. And in regulatory news, President Trump proposed changes to a segment of Medicare drug pricing that the White House believes would save Americans $17.2 billion over five years and cut down on what he calls global freeloading. The president plans to change the pricing model for Medicare Part B drugs administered in doctor's offices to keep costs aligned with the lower prices similar countries pay for the same medicines. And federal pricing models sooner or later work their way into the workers' compensation official medical fee schedule. The White House says that total payments for such drugs could drop by 30% over time. The new International Pricing Index for Medicare Part B would set a target price for physician-administered drugs at 126% of the average price other countries pay. It would include a larger add-on fee for doctors and hospitals that would be independent of the drug's price. That's a change from the current system that sets pricing based on the average sales price only in the U.S., plus a price-based add-on fee. The new model would end the incentive for doctors to prescribe the most expensive drugs to obtain the higher fees. The Medicare Part B model would be phased in over five years and initially apply to 50% of the country, with the opportunity to scale up afterward. An HHS report compared prices for 27 different Medicare Part B drugs and found that prices charged to the U.S. are 1.8 times higher on average than 16 other countries with similar economic conditions. The U.S. was paying the highest price for 19 of the 27 drugs. The pricing disparities meant that Medicare Part B and its beneficiaries spent an additional $8.1 billion, or 47% more money, on the 27 common drugs than it would if the payments were determined by an international pricing index. And the DWC submitted its 27th annual report summarizing the results of the 2017 audits conducted by the Audit and Enforcement Unit. The Audit Unit annual report provides information on how claims administrators performed and includes a ranking report for conducted audits. The Audit and Enforcement Unit completed 47 new profile audit reviews. The subjects were seven insurance companies, 14 self-administered and self-insured employers, 22 third-party administrators and four insurance company third-party administrators combined claims adjusting locations. The performance is rated for action in specific areas of benefit provision and of foremost importance is the payment of all indemnities owed to an injured worker. The timeliness of all initial and subsequent indemnity payments and compliance with the regulations of the Administrative Director for the provision of notice for a qualified or agreed medical evaluation are also measurable performance factors. 43 audit subjects, or 91% of them, 
met or exceeded the performance standard and therefore had no penalty citations assessed. However, these audit subjects were ordered to pay all unpaid compensation. Four audit subjects, or 9% of the review, failed to meet or exceed the standard, and their audits were expanded to a full compliance audit. Two of these audit subjects met or exceeded the full compliance audit standard and therefore had penalty citations assessed only on unpaid and late payment of indemnities. The remaining two of the four full compliance audit subjects failed to meet or exceed the full compliance audit standard and their audits expanded into full compliance audit stage and added a sample of denied claims to be audited. These audit subjects were assessed administrative penalties for all penalty citations. The audit regulations are currently being amended to address the statutory changes brought about by the adoption of Senate Bill 863. The WCIRB recently released a new study in which its researchers examined the impact increased efforts to identify and prosecute provider fraud may be having on the system. The study uses data from the WCIRB's medical transaction database to analyze the volume and type of medical services that were performed by providers who were subsequently indicted or suspended for fraud. As of last April, more than 450 medical providers have been indicted or suspended by the DIR from practicing. Many of these providers were previously paid significant amounts for workers' compensation-related services. While many of the procedures billed by these providers may have been for legitimate services, the suspension of their practices in California's workers' compensation is likely a significant driver of reduced medical costs. The study included medical doctors, pharmacists, and pharmacies, chiropractors, suppliers of durable medical equipment, and hospitals. Approximately half of the indicted providers were medical doctors, and about one-third were pharmacists or pharmacies. Almost half of the providers received less than $100,000 in payments for medical services in the system, and about 10% received more than $10 million in medical payments. The share of medical payments to indicted providers declined from 7.2% in the second half of 2012 to only 1.9% in the second half of 2017. The share of paid transactions by indicted providers also fell from 4.4% to 1.4% over the same time period. The complete study is accessible in the research section of the WCIRB website. And in medical news, a group of researchers claim that hospital accreditation is not necessarily tied to better outcomes for patients, according to the report published in the British Medical Journal. The study was based on records from more than 4.2 million patients over age 65 covered by Medicare. The study team found no difference between accredited and unaccredited hospitals in patient death rates and only a slightly lower rate of patient readmissions at accredited hospitals. To be reimbursed by Medicare, hospitals either 
need to be accredited by an independent organization approved by CMS or they must have passed a review by a state survey agency. To see if accredited hospitals offer better quality care, researchers analyzed data from 4,400 U.S. hospitals, including 3,337 accredited facilities and 1,063 that passed state-based review. They linked this data with Medicare files and with results of government-sponsored patient satisfaction surveys for all the hospitals. Overall, they found that patients treated at accredited hospitals had slightly lower 30-day mortality than those at hospitals reviewed by a state agency, although the difference was too small to rule out the possibility it was due to chance. The research team also found identical mortality rates and nearly identical readmission rates for sick types of major surgery at accredited and state-reviewed hospitals. Patient experience scores were slightly higher at state survey hospitals than accredited hospitals. The research team found no differences in mortality, readmission rates, or patient experience scores between the hospitals accredited by the Joint Commission, which is considered the gold standard for accreditation, or other independent organizations. Siemens Health and Airs, the medical arm of the German engineering and technology conglomerate, has teamed up with Israeli startup Healthy IO to allow patients to test their urine at home by using a smartphone camera that scans a dipstick and sends the results to their doctor. Healthy IO's founder and CEO was selected as one of the 50 most influential people in healthcare by Time magazine. The Alliance is the latest partnership between medtech firms and technology companies aimed at helping patients monitor their own health as well as lowering the costs of managing chronic diseases. Urine testing is the world's second most frequently conducted diagnostic test. Regular testing is needed to monitor kidney function in patients with chronic kidney disease, as well as to detect potential signs of diabetes. Last summer, the FDA granted approval to Healthy IO's urinalysis kit. The app's AI software can detect 10 different healthcare conditions, including certain infections, pregnancy issues, and chronic conditions, and instantly stores that data in the cloud for care providers. Under the new global partnership, Healthy IO will use urinalysis tests from Siemens Health and Ears in DIP kits that are sent to patients at home. The mobile health platform is currently being tested at Pennsylvania's Geisinger Health System in a partnership with the National Kidney Foundation. A number of technology companies, including Apple, Samsung Electronics, and Google, are working on health-related applications for wearable devices and smartphones. Last month, Apple said its new watch can take an electrocardiogram and detect heart problems. Orthopedic company Zimmer Biomet is also testing a new app with Apple, which would allow patients to have hip or knee replacements 
to funnel basic health data from their Apple Watches to their surgeons. So that is all of our news and our events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcast on our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. We also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on Amazon. Again, I am Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Minukian Langeman. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.